Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wiser Conversations, together at home. My name is Derek Handley. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a teacher and a student. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker, an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to reflect on our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. With all the uncertainty, there is no better moment than now to reflect on what matters to us and who we wish to become as we see out this pandemic. Welcome. I just think that so much of our time together can be much more meaningful and joyful and specific if we just spend a little bit of time asking, why am I doing this and who do I need to accomplish that? People love to gather in groups small and large for a drink, for a wedding or a meeting. And we often think about the form, like where should we go and what should the food be? But maybe we should pay a lot more attention to how we should be when we actually get there. This conversation with Priya Parker, the author of The Art of Gathering, explores the often overlooked nuances to make gatherings most meaningful at a time when for some in the world, gatherings are barely possible and for others have only recently been made so again. Thanks for beaming in from New York to speak with us in this, what we call wiser conversations, trying to get a sense of wisdom, purpose, meaning in these very surreal times. And the, the work that you do and the things you speak about um, around how we gather, how we bring ourselves together, how we connect, I think are more and more important than they ever have been. And also in new and interesting ways we need to rethink what it means to connect because we are often unable to do so physically even if we're in a country like New Zealand where we can hear it doesn't mean that our weddings and our funerals and our birthdays are all not the, they're not the same you know because people are scattered all around the world some people are stuck halfway around the world on their way in or some people are stuck here on their way out and what have you been thinking about in the last few months about how you rethink what it means to gather in these environments. Thank you for having me. And um, we in the U.S. are looking longingly at New Zealand uh, in many ways, environmentally, politically, and in, in a COVID moment. So it's good to be in conversation with you all. Um, you know, I think of myself, I am a trained conflict resolution facilitator. Um, the core of my work 
you know, I'm not an events planner. I don't come through the world of food or through, um, you know, flowers or lighting, the kind of the, the, the stuff um, of gathering. And so for me, the way I think about what I do and have always done pre-COVID is to help a group meaningfully connect despite obstacles. And, um, and, and actually in much of, particularly in my kind of, in the context in which I'm not working with groups in conflict, but just thinking about helping people have more meaningful meetings or dinner parties or memorial services, often it's actually the physical that we over rely on, right? That kind of gets in our way. We think if we have the perfect knives or if we have the perfect colors of our, you know, for our weddings that everything else will take care of itself. And so in a way, what I've always thought about is how do you create the psychological and emotional sense of togetherness without over relying on these things as our source of meaning? And I, and COVID in a way has um, made that question explicit for all of us. And so much of what I've been thinking about and over the last many months is how do I and how do we create a sense of psychological and, and emotional togetherness um, when we can't rely on physical togetherness. And so in a way, our, um, whether it's virtual gatherings or in, you know, in real life or, you know, back IRL, whatever you want to call it, um, navigating, you know, meeting six feet apart or whatever these kind of new restraints are, constraints are, all of us are now starting to think about gathering in a way that I think facilitators have been thinking about for a long time, but we are kind of now, you know, I joke, we are all facilitators now in meaning we're looking at the actual interstitching of what creates meaning when you're together. Right. So it's your prime time. You've been waiting for the, the ability <laughs> to, to interject. No, it's, it's an opportunity to really be more deliberate, right? I think what you just said about, when you think of someone thinking about their wedding, and I mean, we've all been to so many weddings and how much thought gets put into the flowers, the table, the, you know, the, the setting, the food, the music, and almost without exception, how little thought is put into throwing 200 random people in a room and how are they going to connect and engage for seven hours? <laughs> like, so it's really a uh, fascinating thing to be much more thoughtful about that and being triggered to to have to consider that because of what's happening. You know, I think a wedding is a great example in part because um, it's such an archetypal gathering, meaning we all have images, whatever our cultures are, whether it's a white wedding dress walking down an aisle or whether it's you know, people walking around a fire or, or, or choose your tradition, um, the Jewish, you know, hora. But so many of those uh, of our weddings have been, you know, canceled or corona I, I recently heard a term called the Corona bride, which <laughs> I'm not sure is a good, is a good term or not. Um, but I think, you know, we often are on autopilot in our weddings and the more obvious seeming our gatherings are, or the more inherited a, a ritual is the more likely we are to, to not question it. And part of what you're seeing right now with weddings is in the U.S., there's this question, I don't know if it's in New Zealand as well, but the, one of the most common questions brides, and it's usually brides, get before a wedding when people are just trying to make conversation is, what are your colors, right? Do you know that question or have you no. heard it? It, it just, it's just, it's kind of vernacular for 
like, how's your wedding planning going? The proxy question is, what are your colors? And this is particularly, you know, women asking women, meaning mm-hmm. what are the theme colors of the wedding, right? Is it teal mm-hmm. and silver or, or what, meaning flowers and, and drapery and your bridesmaids dresses and kind of all of these elements. And I think one of the things that I've been saying for, a, you know, for, for some time, and I'm not the only one, is that we need to change the questions we're asking people and, and to say instead, like, what is the ritual going to be? Or how are you going to navigate the fact that you and your partner don't believe in the same God? Right. How right. are you, you're from you know, multiple different traditions within each family. How do you honor each side without erasing the parts that are complicated? And I think one of the things that COVID is forcing is because we can no longer, we don't know how to do this, right? We literally, we don't know. How, mo, I don't, I would be, I don't think most people had weddings on Zoom before COVID. And so part of, and we are, whether it's a wedding or whether it's a memorial service or whether it's a, um, you know, a town hall, right? Elected officials are trying to figure out how to meaningfully canvas during an election year. Like we are, all of these group moments have been interrupted. And the opportunity there is that some of the ways we were doing it before wasn't working very well, particularly in more diverse societies, particularly in you know, assumptions, whether vows were misogynist or whether they assumed that the couple was the same sex or gender or faith. And so when you have to figure out how do I host a wedding over Zoom, do I, first, do I want to do this? It forces a set of questions, which are good in every gathering, which is, what is the purpose of this? Mm-hmm. Why are we not necessarily getting married, but why do we want to have a wedding? Is it for us? Is it for our community? Is it to be, is it to bear witness? Is it to bring together, to have the excuse to bring together all parts of our lives to come together because this is the one time we can ask them um, so that they, when the going gets tough, as it does in all marriages, we have not just my brother-in-law and your college buddy, but also our great Aunt Bertha saying, no, 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 but do you remember the day it was so powerful? Remember your vows, right? We, We gather because we need each other and to give people roles. And I think in this moment, including Zoom weddings, and we talk about this in the Together Apart podcast, is people are deeply rethinking, why do you have a wedding and how can we do this in a community? Like, do you keep the chat open? Do you let guests meet in breakout rooms? Do you, if you can't be through your father when they walk you down the aisle, is there a way to have a, a special person holding the FaceTime camera as you walk down your staircase? right? Each moment is actually being reinvented. I think the question of what something is for is really important, right? I mean, even if you take, get out of the uh, wedding and go right back into, say, the daily work environment, the meeting, for example, which got totally transformed over the last four months, or a board meeting, everything from what you wear, I mean, I've seen people show up in basically pajamas, like to how much attention you're paying, how much focus you are, are giving, uh, how long it goes for, all these things for a, a period of time and in some places are still suspended and up for grabs and up for redesign, right? And mm-hmm. what are some guidelines as we think about, well, if you're either a country that's going back into normalization, um, well, don't just go back into what you were doing. How might you mm-hmm. think about doing things differently? I mean, I think first is, and this can happen at the level of a team or it can happen at the level of a company or an organization, is to ask a very simple question, which is, why do we meet? Like literally, when is it worth, when is it worth all of our times to be in the same place at the same time 
and agree to not do anything else or play any other role at this unique moment in time. And in part for those countries and cities that are still in somewhat of a quarantine or sheltering in place for organizations, you know, zooming in and out all day long is extraordinarily exhausting. And so the bar to continue to meet has been interrupted. And so a couple of very practical tips. The first is as a team with, or within an organization, to, to have open conversation to say, first, when does, given that we are all, you know, also in this moment caretaking other people, or many of us are, given that we are also in our homes and what, what, whatever that context might look like, or we may have spotty internet, or we have all of these various constraints, when is it worth to meet and for what, and what can be put into an email? And you've been given this gift of almost like this interruption or this palate cleanse to not say, let's just take every meeting we're already doing and put it online. Let's actually pause and say, there's more weight now to meet. It's, 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 it's weightier. It's heavier. Right. Right? It means I'm not spending time with my children. It means that I'm not, you know, cleaning my home because no one's able to come into my home, right? All of these other things. And so, so when do we actually meet? And then the second question is, and what is the appropriate technology or medium based on the purpose? So not everything should be a race to the bottom or a race to the top of being a, a, on video conferences, right? Video mm. conferences require you to be, you know, a bit presentable. Otherwise, show your colleagues another side of yourself. Mm. But it's also studies show that it's, you know, it's exhausting emotionally yeah. because mirroring is delayed, right? And so I need to read you. You need to read me. So there's certain contexts, like I think larger groups, where it's helpful to see it, people's reactions to things um, to, to perhaps be in gallery view and to not have them check out. But there are many conversations, including therapists in the U.S. are now doing this. Practitioners like Esther Perel and Jack Saul are, are doing purposely doing phone calls, non-video phone calls and actually going on walks. Right. Well, it seems much less taxing and much more. I mean, I've found at least you can focus a lot more when you're just listening like when you're not having to visually engage. And also, as you said, you can go for a walk, which is also really, um, I found missing when you had to be on visual Zoom constantly. Now that seems to be the new norm in lots of things. Well, you can't do that on a walk and or walking around your house or walking around the garden or walking down the road. It's, it's, it's interesting how some things have, have taken away some things that I used to love doing in the past. But I think that it's shifting back a little bit. People are kind of opting out of the visual Zooms uh, now. But as you talked about weight, isn't there a sense now that the in-person becomes much more weighty? Like, okay, does it have a higher threshold or does it give it more meaning or should it? You know, because say, for example, New Zealand, we've gone quite back to normal. I wonder if we're really taking things for granted when you look at Australia having to close back down again. Um, you know, we should be more treating it more preciously, the ability to meet in person and do these things that it's almost like as if it's always been and never, and never lost here, you know? I mean, I think, I think we are treating it more preciously in the sense that people are doing it despite the dangers, right? I think COVID obviously is a very, is a cruel disease for many reasons. I think one of the reasons it's deeply cruel is because it taxes collective life. And so it's one thing we're all, you know, many of us are thinking, okay, is it worth the risk? And it depends on, again, where you are in the world. Is it worth the risk to figure out how to safely have my my the grandparents meet their first grandchild. Yes, probably. You know, right? You want to figure out all of the ways to make maybe you all get tested. But the but the part that actually goes to the wayside is all of the informal 
civic life that you don't plan that, you know, running into someone on the street corner or deciding to go to stop by to the neighbor block party, all of the civic fabric that we benefit from because it's actually a huge weight and is dangerous now to, to meet in larger groups. One of the deepest threats aren't our intimate, most important relationships. To me, some of the deepest threats is actually our citizen life, our civic life, our good neighbor life. Um, you know, seeing the same crossing guard, right? Walking across the street with your children each day and having a wave, like the civic and social fabric, particularly of a diverse democracy, is actually under threat. Right. There's so much more friction and barrier to, to be able to, to connect fluidly like we, like we used to um, in different parts. I've been joking that I, um, I've been mourning the death of the, gummy, of the shared gummy bear jar. Right, you know, yeah, jelly that's bean, gone. or what do you know, yeah. choose your almonds? Like we've the spent mints. the last many years trying to figure out how to become more collective and sharing, yeah. and now you know offices are literally stripping yeah, away the office snack bar. Yeah, the collective yeah. shared element of life. Yeah, talking about food, you have different and interesting guidelines or suggestions for when you're going to have a, a gathering or a meal or something that can make it more purposeful, more directed. And one of the ones I found pretty funny was uh, an example rule. If you, if you talk about your kids, you have to have a shot. And what's that about? Like, what is that about trying to get us as humans to, to recognize and do differently? So this was a story from a woman named Jancy Dunn, who was called me up. And um, this was when the Art of Gathering came out a couple of years ago. And um, it was for Real Simple Magazine. And she asked, um, why, you know, can you help me art of gathering a my dinner party? And I asked her a very simple question, which is a question I think we, you know, we all benefit from asking, which is what is a need in your life, right? Or in your workplace that by gathering a specific group of people, you might be able to address. And long story short, she realized that she was a worn out mom. What she wanted to do was spend time with other worn out moms, not talking about their children. And part of what I was helping her do is give purpose, which just meant at some level give specificity. It helped her decide who should she invite to this thing. And it helped give them a sense of common identity, which is we are mothers, but we also have many other parts of our life. And so that very specific example, she called it the worn out mom's hootenanny. And she made a very simple rule, and it was tongue in cheek, that if you talk about your kids, you have to take a shot. And part of what she did in this very simple way is she gave specificity and form to basically just another evening. And a huge part, you know, I'm not um, against informal life, like far from it. I just think that so much of our time together can be much more meaningful and joyful and specific if we just spend a little bit of time asking, why am I doing this and who do I need to accomplish that? And so your thoughts are that the more you consider the focus, like what's the focus of the point of this, whether it's two people or a hundred people, helps you think through, um, separate almost like the wheat and the chaff, like what is it that we're trying to get out of this collective of people and how do we enable that? Absolutely. And, and, and part, we just tend to skip that question and go quickly to form. So even if you think in a work context, like a networking night, you know, yeah. We have, we as, you know, many of us have a specific form on our head of what that looks like and whether that means like speed dating, you know, for work around a table or whether that means, you know, choose your form, but we quickly get to thinking about the form of what's the networking mm. be rather than saying, why are we doing this? Who are we trying to connect? 
Is this for people to find business partners or is this people to find clients? Those are two very different invitation lists. Mm. Are these people who already know each other and want to form deeper relationships and therefore each session should be 35 minutes? Or is this is the goal to literally meet as many people as possible and therefore it should actually be two minutes each? So right. the form should come after the function, not reverse. It's almost like that, that should be the North Star, right? What is it that we want people to achieve and then work backwards to figure out, well, what's the right space? What's the right environment? What's the right physicality of that? And whatever it is we do, we somehow default to, oh, I know a great place to have that. Or I know a great place to do that. Or I know a really great room to, to hold that. It's interesting why we've trained ourselves. Absolutely. Or we back into it through the guest list, right? Because we right. don't specifically ask what the purpose is. You have these proxy wars. It's like, well, why would we invite marketing? This isn't about, you know, this is this is too early on to invite marketing. We don't even know what we're doing. Right? So people back into it sometimes. Or as a guest, you walk into a meeting and you think, huh. Why am I here? <laughs> or, or why are they here? Oh, right. Right? I, I, I thought this was about product design. Mm-hmm. Why did they invite, like, the account reps? So we've been doing the way we've been doing it for a long time. So my life, I do gatherings the way I've been doing them. Okay. And all of a sudden I meet you and now I have to, I'm rethinking them. This is a question from somebody. Okay. You're going to start to do something different. How do you feel okay doing that and imposing in a sense, uh, all of a sudden I'm just going to change it up. I've invited you to like 10 dinners in the last 10 years. They've been like this. This one's going to be different. How do you get comfortable taking that, that step? Cause it's a little bit like, who are you to redesign, to redesign our experience, you know? So this is a beautiful question that comes that is about power and power in groups. And my goal is not to make every gathering different, right? Like if your gathering is working and you have a group of people that are coming back every week or every year for your gathering in a specific way, and they're coming back in ways that every time it just feels beautiful and, and deeply nourishing, don't change it. Right. So that's the first thing. I'm not for change for change sake, but I think to look and to ask and with and if it's a if it's a group of friends or it's a group of family to think about who needs to be on board in order for us to change this. And is this working for enough people to, for, to continue in this way or is this no longer working for people? So a very simple example. I was once advising a group of an association. Um, they called me up and they were in an intergenerational family in an Indian context on the West Coast in the U.S. And they had family reunions every year. But these, this was like, this was like a, almost like a, like a subgroup within a region. And so their family reunions were like 3,000 people, like 30,000 people. This is not 12 people. And they, the older generation realized that they needed to hand power down to the younger generation if they were going to come. Otherwise they were, you know, they found it boring. And the biggest gripe that this group had that the younger generation had was that they didn't serve meat at this gathering because that specific group i'm going to call them the smiths the name is not smith that specific group the smiths you know have an identity and a religious belief that to be virtuous or not even virtuous to be a smith means you don't eat meat and the next generation which is diaspora first generation eating meat maybe their parents know it or don't know it we're actually asking a deeper question, which is it okay to be a meat eater and still be a Smith? Right. And so, Mm. so, and, and they had to really contend between two different generations 
about what are we willing to let go of? Like, it seems like it's just about food, but it's actually a proxy war about identity and belonging. And like, can you still, in this case, be an American and be part of the old country? But it was this war about the meat table. And so to the question about power, ask what the purpose is. Is the purpose still relevant? Does the form match the current need or is it trying to solve a previous need? And who needs to be part of that conversation to update it? Because, mm. I mean, in that context, I think everyone can relate to that being part of family, not of 30,000, but a family tradition of some sort of gathering that's been going for maybe a couple of generations and you're a part of since you were like a kid. And you're maybe looking at it going, maybe we should just update a little bit or evolve it. And there's maybe a sense of fear or guilt as to how do you approach that, whether it could be something that's in your institution, whether at university or workplace, or it could be that, you know, your, your grandmother is at the helm of this tradition or this gathering. Does it have to wait until she passes before you can rethink it? Totally. And in some families, yes. And in some families, no. And so a couple of very specific pieces of advice. One is get curious and find out, am I the only one who feels outside of this, whether it's boring or whether, uh, you know, the words or the language of the activity feels sexist or othering, or I'm the biracial cousin, or I'm the one with the, you know, person of color parents, like for whatever reason, every family has their stuff and everybody, different family cultures assign black sheepness <laughs> for different reasons. And so find out, am I the only one? And, and, and if not, where else might the sensitivity lie? And then third, how might we have a conversation outside of the gathering? Like don't stage the coup in the moment. These are also families are sensitive. These are long-term, it might be one element at a time. Um, I'll, you know, I, I'll give a simple example. I had a friend, he's half uh, Thai, half Scottish, grew up in the UK and recently was listening to get to together apart um, this podcast with the New York times where we're exploring a lot of these questions. And he, his grandmother had died the previous year. And in, he's also Jewish in the Jewish tradition, they would have a stone setting ceremony. And traditionally it was the eldest child who, or a rabbi who would kind of like give the eulogy. And, and this guy, his name is Adam. He was like, maybe we can do it over zoom. We were, we're all, all over the place. Can we do it over zoom? And long, and first he like tentatively asked his father and uncle and they're like, no, zooms are often like, they're terrible. It's so awkward. And he's like, no, well, I, I think I can do it in the right way. And then they finally said, you know what? You own it. And he emailed everybody in this family. It's like 25 different subfamilies and said, would you come for granny's memorial? We're going to make it a zoom memorial. Email me ahead of time. If you'd like to share a story that reminds you of granny short and sweet, like she was. And they did it. And he and, and 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 he wrote me later and he said, it was beautiful. And I got so many notes because I imposed some structure. People were happy that like something was done. And most importantly, we democratized who owned her memory, right? It wasn't one person at the helm walking up the aisle mm -hmm. and speaking to a microphone because right. of this massive interruption of COVID, a right. different person in the family actually was able to drastically change the way a family grieves, remembers, mourns in this small way. And I think we all have opportunities in this moment to actually use these interruptions to be able to say, how might we might do this differently right now? That's a really wonderful example of someone not taking the power, but kind of re reorganizing and redistributing how people contribute to something that otherwise might have been pretty top down, right? Now, I know you've got to leave soon. So 
I wanted to go to one of your, I think, most important ideas, which I need to think about more for this, these conversations and, and this podcast, which is the first three or four or five minutes and the last three or four or five minutes of any kind of gathering are disproportionately more important than all the stuff in the middle. Um, tell us about that. So first, the first kind of 5%, how we open, sets the norms and codes and unspoken rules of how a group is orienting itself to like, how is this? Oh, in, the, in our virtual life, oh, is this a camera on or camera off? I guess it's camera off. Oh, we're all muted. Oh, we're not all muted. Oh, we can all talk. Oh, we're using the chat like crazy. Or, oh, no one's using the chat, right? But it's usually all silent. But however you think about starting is going to set the norms of how people behave, unless someone's trying to really change it. And the closing 5% is our meaning making, right? What do you want people to remember? How do you want people to exit? What actually happened here? What is the meaning that we made from this? What are you going to most take away? You could do it right now on the chat. Um, what are you most going to take away from this or remember or try? And so it's not that a climatic moment or the middle doesn't matter, but we think that the middle only matters. And actually the beginning shapes the, the, the runway, the track, and the end helps to close the world and the, the world that you've created. And the way you do it is to not just have it stop, but actually spend time saying what transpired here. And, mm. and you can do it in very simple ways. You could have 50 people put in a chat. What's one thing you're going to take from here? You get a mm. lot of data rather than just trying to guess. I hope that was useful. Well, that specifically is a really nice idea. Um, sometimes that's naturally happened. Actually, often it has and people just punch in. It's awesome, love this bit, love that bit, but it's really nice to think of that maybe being part of the ritual of closing these conversations. Thank you so much for uh, for being with us this, this evening, your evening. Uh, we will um, cherish the ideas and thoughts that you've brought to us, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your, uh, your evening. And I will hang around, and um, one other thing you come up with last week was the mute button's very powerful in Zoom, and I'm going to start experimenting in these conversations when they're longer by in the second or last, the, the last third, maybe unmuting and, and letting a free-for-all take place. Um, and, to set some, and to set some norms. I mean, I'll close now. I'll just model, like, I think a closing. You're, what you're doing here is actually complicated because you have two gatherings happening that will be actually a part. You have your community online right now and I'm seeing some of their wonderful chats come in. And then you record this as a podcast and how do you begin to connect those two communities? So mm. you just ask this question and in the chat right now, and if, if, if I was closing this and then I'm gonna exit and then you can close and, and continue the conversation. But thank you for having me. But you asked a very simple question. On one hand, you're being the interlocutor and telling me this is really helpful and I hope it was very helpful to you. And there's a simple way to have people express their thanks, which is just thank you. But in a very simple way, you can also, as you just did in the chat, what is one thing you're taking from here? And so, and then you can just to close, rather than your last word or my last word, you can end with what you see. So I'm seeing, I really resonated with the coming back to the purpose of the meeting, the ritual of closing, how powerful, rethinking what is important and focusing on what I want and being okay with this, right? We didn't even say that, right? So that's also somebody processing, Bianca saying, this is actually me being okay with this. I, I have permission. This conversation between Derek and Priya gave me permission to ask what is it I want and accept it. You know, the opening and the closing is having a lot of resonance, um, using power in meetings. And so, so, so thank you for having me. 
And, um, and, and, and I look forward to seeing in all of the ways that you continue to, to create these beautiful conversations and to interstitch the many gatherings you are now hosting together at home. Thank you, Priya. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations, Together at Home. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it today. And if you haven't already, go on and push subscribe. See you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 